Welcome back to the Tasty Morsels of Critical Care podcast. Today we are going to do our best to charm the yellow snake of the intensive care unit and cover the pulmonary artery flotation catheter. Like a lot, indeed practically all of these topics, I do not in any way consider myself to have any great expertise in the topic, but I have had to upskill as much as I possibly can in lieu of the, the typical misspent use doing cardiac anesthesia that most of my colleagues have had. As such, the source list for this post is quite varied in terms of its references. And the focus here will be on the basis, the nuts and bolts of how to put in and what type of numbers you might obtain from a pulmonary artery catheter. The insertion carries a lot of similar complications to any typical central vascular access procedure, but the big ones come from the fact that you're trying to place the catheter through the heart rather than just get the tip in close proximity to it. Perforation is of course a real possibility with this, but perhaps more likely are the nasty arrhythmias that are precipitated by the catheter irritating the myocardium. And you can expect to see this more in the cold, shocked post-bypass patient uh, or in someone who's already got a dodgy ticker and is having lots of arrhythmias at baseline. The pulmonary artery catheter is also famous for the knots it can manage to tie itself in um, that can make extraction more than a little challenging and there's some great images um, and x-rays out there of how various types of knots have managed to inform with the pulmonary artery catheter and causing all kinds of um, damage and trauma to the tricuspid valve. There are lots of good materials online in terms of the actual videos, for example, of how to actually put the thing in, so I'll only mention a few basics in passing. The tiny little balloon at the tip of the catheter that gives it the flotation catheter name, it kind of catches the flow of the venous return that's all trying to get back to the right heart, and that pulls the catheter along and directs it hopefully towards the pulmonary artery. In the absence of fluoroscopy, it can be tricky to know quite where the tip of the catheter is at any given time, so we use the changes in waveforms to tell us what chamber or vessel the tip is, what chamber or vessel it's in at any given time. The pattern we should expect to see in terms of changing of the waveform should be, first of all, a CVP waveform, then an RV, a right ventricle waveform, then a pulmonary artery waveform, and finally a wedged waveform when it's wedged in one of the distal pulmonary um, branches. If all plays ball, then you should see those patterns at roughly 20 centimetres, 30 centimetres, 40 centimetres and 50 centimetres, respectively, with all the usual caveats applying. The challenge is usually, um, in terms of passing it, is transitioning from the right ventricle to the pulmonary artery. And the key change um, to look for in the waveform is the step up in the diastolic pressure. Um, Whereas in the RV waveform, you'll typically have a diastolic pressure in the low single digits, when the diastolic pressure in the pulmonary artery is usually in the low double digits. And it's that step up that lets you know that you've crossed the pulmonary valve and you've made it into the pulmonary artery. Once the procedure bit is done, we typically take an x-ray um, looking for where the tip is. And typically the natural curve of the catheter, because there is a natural curve in it, will lead it to end up in the right pulmonary artery most commonly, though this is by no means guaranteed. It can be tricky to tell from a simple chest x-ray, but ideally we want the tip to be in a west zone 3 part of the lung, typically in the inferior portions. Now, west zones may be a distant memory from medical school, but for our purposes, the estimate of the left atrial pressure produced by our pulmonary capillary wedge pressure is only valid when the alveolar pressure is less than the pulmonary venous pressure, a situation that exists only in west zone 3. If you're in zone 3, you should be able to see A and V waves, which are analogous to the A and V waves of the CVP waveform, on the right side of the heart. In some of the linked papers at the end of this post, there are some excellent images of troubleshooting various waveforms that you might get when you're passing the catheter. And one of the more useful ones I find was when you're dealing with the failing right ventricle. Indeed, the very scenario where a pulmonary artery catheter is likely to be needed. 
In this scenario, the RV diastolic pressures can approach the pulmonary artery diastolic pressures. So you've lost that um, step up in diastolic pressure that you're expecting to see as you move from RV through the pulmonary valve and the pulmonary artery. The way to kind of tease out um, how you've transitioned from RV to PA in this scenario um, is that when the pulmonary artery catheter is in the right ventricle, the diastolic runoff, now that's the period before the next ejection, is upsloping. And the diastolic runoff is downsloping when the pulmonary artery catheter has made it all the way through to the pulmonary artery. You'll probably need to go back and listen to that again, but I'd recommend going looking at the images. There's lots of measurements we can take from a pulmonary artery catheter. So directly measured pulmonary artery pressures are, of course, really useful. But the typical catheters used these days also have a thermodilution filament built into the catheter so that we can measure continuous cardiac output um, on the principle that the RV cardiac output is equivalent to the LV cardiac output. The contemporary catheters we use um, also give these semi-random pulses of heat up to about 44 degrees um, at max in order to calculate a thermodilution cardiac output. Now, in general, there needs to be at least a 15% um, difference in the cardiac output for it to be dependably detectable by the pulmonary artery catheter. And it actually averages um, the cardiac output over about 5 to 10 minutes rather than providing you with a beat-to-beat variation in cardiac output. You'll see in some of your machines there's often a stat cardiac output button or a stat cardiac output measure. And that's average averaging over a much shorter period, like about maybe 60 seconds. So just think about that if you're using things like fluid boluses and fluid responsiveness with the pulmonary artery catheter, um, you do need to see that 15% difference in cardiac output to be detectable. In another success of marketing over function, um, there is typically a continuous oxygenation sensor at the tip of the catheter, and this will give you a continuous reading of the true mixed venous oxygenation. Um, but it's worth pointing out that it's worth calibrating that with an actual co-oximetry reading from your blood gas machine. Um, pull a sample off um, from the distal port of your PAC and put it through your blood gas machine, and then that will allow you to calibrate your sensor on the tip of it. With the pulmonary artery catheter in place, we have the potential for measuring the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, which, given a long number of assumptions, can allow us to infer things like what the left atrial pressure is or what the left ventricular end diastolic pressure is. These are key variables for assessing the filling status of the left heart. The principle involves the tip being in a west zone 3 branch vessel, as mentioned. The balloon is then blown up, creating a theoretically continuous column of blood between the tip of the catheter and the left atrium. Once wedged, the displayed number will typically be a mean, because if you look at the waveform, there will be a little bit of a variation in that waveform if it's properly wedged. And the number it provides will typically be a mean of those pressures. However, the pulmonary artery occlusion pressure, your wedge pressure, should be obtained by, um, if you're doing it by the books as such, should be obtained at end expiration and in end diastole which often means reviewing a screenshot with your monitor. You, you probably don't know your monitors have this. They can take a screenshot. There's a little cursor you can move and you can use that to identify the pressure. And you want to time that at the onset of the QRS because that's going to be end diastole. There are, of course, lots of subtleties and caveats to the number obtained, that wedge pressure. Um, and there's even more subtleties to how you might actually respond to it in clinical practice. Finally, if you want to go really hardcore, there is a way of compensating for the effect of high levels of PEEP, so say greater than 10 centimetres of water, and for compensating of those high levels of PEEP on the pulmonary artery occlusion pressure. You can imagine if your lungs are under a lot of external pressure through the ventilator, that that might indeed cause some transmission pressure to the um, pulmonary vasculature and it might alter your wedge pressure. So there is a thing called the transmission index or the TI, and this gives you a corrected pulmonary artery occlusion pressure, um, taking the PEEP into consideration. 
The TI is calculated by looking at the wage pressure in inspiration and expiration. And the difference between these two numbers is then divided by the driving pressure on the ventilator. And this will be your TI, your transmission index. The corrected wage pressure is then um, going to be the measured wage pressure minus the total PEEP multiplied by that number um, you got for your transmission index. Um, this type of maths um, clearly doesn't translate well to audio format and indeed uh, there are actually several of these calculations available just to make it even more confusing. So I will certainly refer you to the show notes for more detail and the papers linked. Um, there is a substantial literature of course behind the utility or perhaps better said um, the lack of utility of the pulmonary artery catheter that did lead to a massive decline in its use that was um, really preceded the mid noughties when, when I started practicing intensive care however they do remain a key tool in the intensivist arsenal and if you deal with sick hearts on a regular basis then it's vital that you have a decent grasp um, on how to charm the yellow snake how to place it and how to interpret those numbers so in terms of reading here, um, the Irwin and Rip um, chapter 19, it's an actually an excellent textbook if you want um, high levels of detail on any given topic, something that maybe sometimes O doesn't always do. Um, the range physiology has, as expected, an even higher level of excruciating detail for those who are interested, um, presented, of course, in its usual, usual excellent fashion. Um, Life in the Fast Lane have a lovely exam early summary. Um, two of the papers... Um, particularly the ones that looked at the waveforms first offer was Bootsma um, published way back in 2021 in the Journal of Clinical Monitoring and Computation I think that's his name um, they're naturally linked to in the show notes um, finally there's a link to a paper by Taboul et al in Critical Care Medicine 2000 that talked about um, the transmission index and how you compensate for PEEP um, with the pulmonary artery catheter so I've run much longer than usual so um, congratulations on your pace patience for making it this long and I shall speak to you next time. Thanks.